There is a bit of a conflict in modern science if you try to make the uh, earth and the plants created uh, before the sun. Uh, consequently, the uh, biblical account, which does that very thing, uh, raises questions as to uh, why it would be done that way. And there are those who think that the Bible must agree with, with uh, science, and therefore they have come up with a couple of theories uh, that you're no doubt familiar with. One of them is that there were clouds uh, keeping the sun from view, and that the sun was, of course, created earlier, but then on the fourth day, uh, the sun came forth. That view is uh, not popular with uh, Old Testament scholars uh, for reasons that I laid out in uh, my paper, The First Four Days of Genesis, uh, in Concordist Theory and in Biblical Context, if you're interested in those. Uh, they're on the, that paper is on the ASA website. The other theory that's uh, probably better known and more popular today is the framework hypothesis, which says that uh, the, the Rother did not intend to make the days sequential, that his intention was to set them up in a rather a poetic way where the first day balances with the fourth and the second with the fifth and the third with the sixth. Uh, this theory, I think, fails before it gets off the ground. Uh, because in that theory, the light created on the first day is supposed to be the habitat or realm of the light bearers, the sun, the moon, and the stars. If you look at verse 5, you'll find that the light created on the first day is daylight, not light in general. And consequently, it can't be the realm of the stars and rarely the realm of the moon. So the question is still there, why is this in this order? And I think the answer is that this is not telling us how God literally, scientifically created the universe, but rather trying to speak to Israelites who had a totally different idea of what the universe was like. Uh, we mustn't forget that we're talking about concepts that were popular not 500 years ago or a thousand or two thousand but at least three and a half thousand years ago these are very simple concepts uh, for them the earth was flat it was circular like a frisbee but flat uh, the sky was a solid dome like an upside down bowl that came over the earth the ocean surrounded the earth not only around the perimeter, but underneath as well. And then in the biblical uh, view, which is also the Babylonian, you also have the ocean above the firmament. Uh, so working from those, that kind of a view of the universe, it's not too surprising you might come up with something a little different. The, the, the thing that should be said uh, also is that in the ancient Near East, when they talked about creation, when we say it, we mean bringing something into existence. And that's the end of it. And that is certainly part of it. But it's also a concept of organizing these things and putting them in their proper place so they're functional. Uh, John Walton, the professor of Old Testament at Wheaton, uh, put so much stress upon the fact that this is uh, creation is about uh, putting things into organized order that sometimes in his commentary you wonder if he th thinks that anything was brought into existence. But it is a combination of those two. So 
we start really with Genesis 1-2, and there we find an earth which is shrouded in darkness, covered with the deep, which it turns out to be a super deep ocean. And as a result of that uh, condition, it is barren and unfruitful. It's uh, tohu and bohu. So here we've got a situation where nothing is growing, no life, and uh, it's the very opposite of what man needs to, uh, as a world and uh, even to have a real functioning world. So that uh, sets up a, a problem that God has to solve. And I think Genesis 1, is, is the order of it, is about solving this problem of this initial state of the earth. Now, we might say, well, where did they... Uh, they certainly didn't get the idea that the uh, earth had an ocean from modern science. Uh, in modern science, the earth comes forth out of the nebula. Dry land comes first as the crust hardens. And there's no ocean until after that. There couldn't even be an ocean prior to the earth cooling off. So it's, it's the opposite of the modern view. But if we go into uh, the uh, Egyptians and look at their thoughts, they would say, well, wait a minute, there's an ocean first, and the god is usually sitting on a, uh, called a hillock or a little piece of land in this ocean, and then from there he creates the heavens and the earth. But the ocean comes first. In the Sumerian, uh, there is a tradition, there's a, uh, a text, I should say, where there is a goddess who is the goddess of a giant ocean again, and you have to remember that having the goddess is irrelevant. She's, you can chuck her out and you still have the giant ocean. So you have to see it in that, those terms. So the goddess, uh, it says that this goddess is the mother of heaven and earth. So again, you have this giant deep ocean preceding heaven and earth. That idea is passed on to the Babylonians and is set forth in the main Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish, where Tiamat uh, is again uh, deep water and then she's first and then out of her comes heaven and earth. So this is a, uh, an ancient Near Eastern concept. The same thing is true of the darkness. Uh, there is, certainly the darkness is a part of the, the Egyptian view and in the Sumerian you again have a text that there was darkness in the pre-creation state and nothing was growing. And in the uh, Babylonian, uh, you, you don't have darkness in the copy of, or a version of Enuma Elish that we have most fully available. But it is, uh, darkness is mentioned in other versions of Enuma Elish, uh, particularly the version uh, of Barosis, a Babylonian priest of about the third century BC. And uh, it's also in a version of uh, Enuma Elish uh, from the 6th century A.D., rather late, but it is still Enuma Elish and it has the darkness. So these are concepts. Uh, we would ask any physicist around the world today, uh, how did the universe get started? And you'll hear usually the Big Bang. The Big Bang is the beginning of the universe. But if you were back there in 3500 B.C. and you said, what is the starting point? They would say, the big ocean. It's just a different, totally different concept. So <clears throat> here's this 
problem that meets us in, uh, right away from this cul ancient culture. Uh, how do we take care of this uh, state of the earth that has no vitality? So on the first day, in answer to the darkness, God makes light. And since I'm talking about sequence, what, why does he make light first? He could have worked with the ocean first. And I think he makes light first for two reasons. Uh, it's the most natural thing to do. Uh, yet today, we walk into a dark room, our very first impulse is, turn on the light. So I think that's part of the, one of the main things here. But there's something else that the biblical author is trying to set forth, and that is that God's work on these six days is an example to humans of how they're to work six days and rest the seventh. And consequently, to have God working in the dark on the first day makes a very poor example for humans because none of them work during the dark. Uh, they worked, of course, during the daylight. So I think there's two reasons why uh, this light is made first. But there's a question comes up about this light. What in the world is this light? The sun has not been created. So I know the modern Western mind keeps going, oh, it's got to be the sun. No, not from the point of view of the ancient world. This can be simply a creation of exactly what it says, light and daylight, uh, quite apart from the sun. And uh, we might wonder, how did they ever get that concept? And I don't know, of course, how they got that concept. But I suspect that they saw light before they saw the sun in the morning. And they saw light after the sun disappeared. And they began to think about the light as something separate from the sun. Now we find in uh, Job, in uh, 38.19, God comes to Job and he asks him this question. He says, in effect, are you, so, if you're so smart, answer this question. Where does the light dwell? And where does the darkness dwell? Now, the answer isn't some quickie, oh, the sun. No, there's a dwelling place for the light uh, during the night. There's a dwelling place for the darkness. And, they, and there's, so there's like, just like keeping uh, uh, the hail in Job, we read that there's a stockpile of hail that God comes and brings out. Well, the light has a place also. And so does the darkness in Job. And I, w I was interested, uh, I had never really seen this text before, but as I was studying this, I saw a text in, e in Ecclesiastes 12.2, uh, which I think shows quite clearly that even at that late date, they were still thinking of four sources, four major sources of light. Because the author in Ecclesiastes uh, says uh, the, the sun, he's talking about these, these things that we don't see as well after we're getting old. And so he says, the sun and the light. No, not the sunlight. The sun, in fact, it can be translated in the context it is, or the light. The sun or the light or the moon or the stars. The sun or the light or the moon or the stars. Four separate uh, sources of light, one of which is just daylight. It's just light itself, or at least daylight itself. So uh, this raises another question. If this light, which we see, well, I should say, <clears throat> have you remembered that this light alternates with darkness? 
right there on the first day. It's alternating with the darkness. It's called the day. The darkness is called the night. Now, if you're going to make a light like that, why don't you just go ahead and make the sun? That's the simplest, easy, most direct route. He does the light first. He doesn't make the sun. Why doesn't he make the sun? Well, I think we have to go to the fourth day when he does make the sun so we begin to understand what he's thinking about. And so when we go to the fourth day when God does make the sun, what does he do with it? He says, let there be lights in the firmament. Now, the firmament is that solid dome over the earth. There has to be light in the firmament. And the next verse, in the firmament. And in verse 17, we have God placed them, those sun, moon, and stars, in the firmament. He placed them in the firmament. That's where they belong. That's their proper functioning place. Well, on day one, there is no firmament. There's no point in making the sun. There's no place to put it. There's no proper place to put it. I don't even know what God would have done with it from their point of view and their universe. So there's no firmament, so he can't make the sun. Why doesn't he make the sun on the second day? Now, this is easy. You just have to think about this a minute. Why doesn't he make the sun on the second day? He needs the second day to make the firmament, <laughs> which is exactly what he makes on the second day. So now we've got the light, we've got the firmament, and now why doesn't he make it on the third day? Why doesn't he make the sun on the third day? Well, I think we have to go back and look at the second day. On the second day, God takes the firmament and he divides this primordial ocean into two parts. Part of it stays down below and part of it is put above the firmament. Uh, don't let the creation science folks keep shifting that water for you between the sun and the earth. The English text is very clear and the Hebrew is equally clear that this water is above the firmament and the sun, moon and stars are later in the firmament. So they're on the bottom. The water is on the top. But what God is doing is he's dealing with this supersized ocean. Now, this must be a supersized ocean because he just cut it in two and he's still got enough left for the ocean on Earth. And that is, of course, that is really what they, how they thought about it. Uh, the, the Septuagint translates uh, the deep, abusus, which is the word from which we get abyss. And uh, I think that's very telling and very uh, correct about how they were thinking about this water. So we have this the terrible, fantastic ocean in the Babylonian account there's this terrific battle between the God who's the creator God and this ocean, who is a, which is a goddess. And so the ocean represents quite a, a problem for these gods to deal with. And this creator God has to go through a terrific battle with all kinds of magic and special weapons. And finally, he overcomes this uh, ocean. Now, we don't have that in, in Genesis at all. Genesis is completely demythologized. We simply have what one God speaks with authority and takes care of this ocean, just splits it into two parts. But there's something there's still a problem here now. Because he gets done with day two. And yes, he's alleviated the problem by splitting up this ocean. It's only half as deep as it was. But the earth is still covered with the ocean. It's still the same condition it was in before, barren wasteland, 
unproductive, unfruitful. At the end of day two, God is in the middle of a job. That's part of the reason why he doesn't make the firmament on the third day. He wants to finish the job. Now, if you go to day two and look, as some of, I'm sure I know a number of people, of course, have done, you'll find that uh, God doesn't say anything's good on about day two. Every other day, there's something good, not about day two. Now, why he doesn't say the firmament is at least good, I have no idea. But I know one thing, he's in the middle of a job, and it's no time to say it's good because a half job isn't good. My dad used to always say to me, don't do a half job. <laughs> so he was right in agreement with God, I guess. <laughs> a half job isn't good. And also on day two, nothing is named. To name something is to think about it in ancient or eastern times as, as existing, as being created and done and available. Nothing's named because it's not really finished yet. So we get to the end of day two and there's, we not only have a job that's unfinished, but we also have this light is still working day and night, day and night, day and night. Now, if you've got the light working, the same way the sun's going to work, and you've got an ocean that's still keeping the earth uh, from being fertile, you're not being pressed very hard to make a sun. You've already got light. But you are being pressed to finish your job of taking care of the ocean. So I believe God then takes care of the ocean, which he does, of course, on day three, where the dry land finally comes up and is available and the ocean is uh, around that dry land. Now the ocean is finally in place. Okay. Now he can go back. There's one more reason. Almost, almost forgot this. <laughs> and when you read about the sun and you're in, in, uh, on day four, it has three functions. One is to divide the day and the night. That was already taken care of by the light. One is to be a means of measuring time. Well, since that original daylight from day one was alternating, that time problem was taken care of. And the last one is, and I quote, to give light upon the earth. To give light upon the earth. And it's repeated. Again, there's no, from their point of view, you don't bring in the sun yet because one of its primary functions is to give light on the earth and there is no earth. Now, I know we saw the earth covered in a, some kind of a sense in the first, uh, first part of the uh, preliminary state there. But if you go into day three, it's the dry land that is the earth. It's not a planet. It's this piece of dry land, that uh, flat, this flat frisbee thing that is the earth. The dry land is the earth. And there is no dry land, so there is no earth. So there's no need for a sun or place for a sun to shed light upon the earth, as is one of its major functions. This ocean has got to be taken care of first. And so, again, we see we take care of the ocean. We finish the job. Everything's in order now. We've got a place for the sun to shine on. And now it's time, finally, on a fourth day, to make the sun. Now, I want to move one more step. Why doesn't God make the sun on the fifth day? As long as he waited this long. Well, when you, when you read the account, I think it's 
the way it's set up and the, the theology leads me to believe that humans are the climax of creation. Consequently, humans, and as it turns out, the land animals, but humans in particular must be saved for the sixth day because that's where you put the climax of a story. So the climax of the story is the humans. The humans are on the sixth day. That means when that author finishes day three, he's only got two days left, four and five. He can, he's got, and he's got two groups of things to create. One group is the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the other group is the fishes and the birds. Now, throughout Sumerian, or excuse me, but Babylonian and uh, Egyptian literature, you always find, or often find, birds and fish mentioned together. So that's a nice little grouping. Comes right out of the Near East. So he's got these two groups of things that he has to create. So if he creates the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day, that kind of fits because he's just created the land and the sky. These are major parts, the earth, and now you would create the sun, moon, and stars, a major part of the universe. You wouldn't follow that up by creating birds and fish. On the other hand, if you put the birds and fish on day five, they are right beside the other animate creation. So you've got your animate creatures together. You've got your inanimate major parts of the universe all together. So coming either from the back of the story or from the front, God had to create the sun on the fourth day. That's it. <laughs> Uh, I'm an independent scholar. I graduated from Westminster Seminary uh, and have spent uh, many moons reading ancient literature and learning languages and so on. And I've written some articles in the ASA Journal and uh, the articles along this line about the cosmos are in the Westminster Theological Journal uh, beginning in 1991. Pardon? Don't, don't forget my book. Oh, I'm glad people are selling my book here. <laughs> yes. Pardon? Why could it not be allegorical? Well, I, I think you can put an allegorical meaning on top. I mean, that's how allegories are done. Uh, excuse me again? How, how do you reject the framework theory? Oh, you're really getting ahead of me here. That's a whole new article. <laughs> I gave you the first part. See, that was a kind of a teaser there. That the, the light doesn't really uh, fit with the light bearers. But, but there are other uh, reasons that I don't really want to do today. But you keep your eyes open. You'll find an article eventually from me on that. <laughs> You pick them out. I'm a little. It's mostly from uh, from this Babylonian epic, probably. However, there is, uh, and again, that isn't totally carried over into the biblical text. But I think there is a 
a sense in which the sea is somewhat uh, ominous or fearful. Uh, frankly, I don't like to go out in the ocean myself unless it's a really big ship. So uh, there is a book about the uh, ocean uh, by Wensink uh, that probably would give you a, a lot more data on that. From what I could tell, uh, not very much. The, the Bible, of course, is uh, the Torah in particular and the Old Testament was such a, uh, a, a central authority that, that they didn't, uh, especially on this cosmos part, they really didn't deviate. Some fascinating stuff in the intertestamental literature. Uh, in one story, uh, I don't call which book, but uh, they talk about uh, some some infamous, uh, not infamous, impious people who at the Tower of Babel went to the top, took an axe, and started chopping through the firmament because they wanted to know what it was made out of. <laughs> There's also a fascinating story even later, you know, clear into uh, rabbinic times, which are times of Christ and later, uh, where they uh, were thinking about the firmament and they thought, well, how thick is that thing anyway? And this was quite interesting because at that late date, they began to think scientifically about it. And they said, well, we've got the light that lasts for so long after the sun uh, goes down. Same thing before. And so that sun is going through a tunnel in the firmament. And once it gets out of the tunnel, then we don't have the light anymore. So if we can judge from how much time we've got light during the day and mark that, match that up with how much time we've got after we don't see the sun, then we'll be able to calculate the, uh, how thick the firmament is. <laughs> so they keep that, uh, this view. And the church, as far as the ocean above, uh, not only the Jews, but the church held on to that idea of the ocean above the uh, firmament uh, all the way up until the time of Calvin who threw it out. But Luther said it was impious to not believe it because the Bible said it. I'm sorry. We can't be over. It's dinner time. You can have a track for dinner then. <laughs>